Today on episode number 370 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Aaron Wittick and Douglas Fritz join me to talk about Toward More Equitable Assessment. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Erin Wittick is the Assistant Director of the Center for Teaching and Learning and Assessment Teaching Professor of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Erin has been awarded several teaching awards during her 13-year career, teaching general chemistry, organic chemistry, and chemistry and society classes at a range of institutions. This wide variety of experiences has afforded her a rare perspective on the importance of context in teaching and learning. Erin and her partner, John, are also parents to two kids, a dog, Ollie, and cat, Waffles, who you'll hear about during the episode. (laughs) Douglas Fritz is a rising M1, MD, PhD student interested in the intersection of infectious disease, medicine, and climate change. He has both immensely benefited from and been frustrated by STEM education for over 17 years. He has spent his bridge years between undergrad and medical school as a curious student, educator, and scientist as a Fulbright scholar in North Macedonia and a post back at the NIH. Douglas is passionate about medicine, environmental justice, and public health. Douglas and Aaron, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I know we all have these gifts that we really treasure. And I've shared about on a past episode, episode number 208, quite quite relevant of a number, about a special keychain gift that a former student gave to me. And every time I look at that that keychain, it reminds me of how I got into teaching and just how that's been such a part of my life since a very early age. And Erin, I know you have a special gift among many that you, that you treasure in, in your family. Could you tell us about that? And it relates to our guest today as well. Yes. Our other guest, Douglas, made me this really nice laser cut um, plaque that I have up in my kitchen that I look at every day when I feed my cat. And uh, it's called the Wittick House of Waffles because my cat's name is Waffles. And there's a whole story behind the Douglas's affinity to waffles as well. So I don't know if he wants to tell a little <laughs> bit about that background, too. Tell us about waffles, Douglas. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know. For some reason, waffles has really been a theme throughout my life. I got into a really interesting um, debate with a friend in high school about whether or not waffles were better than pancakes. And that turned into a speech that I gave at my high school graduation. And since then, you know, like waffles have just started kind of popping up in various different areas. And so when Erin announced that she had a cat named Waffles, I knew there was a great opportunity for me to use the laser cutter in the library um, and then also to. Um, kind of blend my appreciation for waffles into um, something for her to thank her for being a fantastic mentor um, throughout my college career. 
I totally love it. Although I feel like I should have warned the two of you, you know, if we're going to talk about such controversial topics like pancakes versus waffles, we have to work our way into that and have a time for people to really unpack something that's controversial. I'm glad my kids are in the other room and can't hear us talking because this would, uh, I could see there being quite the debate around that. And I'm going to get all kinds of emails from people that are going to have their own things to say about that, too. In, in all seriousness, Douglas, what is something that you treasure the way that Aaron and I treasure our invaluable gifts? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I have just a box. It's kind of like a fancy box that a, a friend made me a couple of years ago. And then I'll, I now put letters in it from different folks, some from teachers, some from friends. When I was traveling around the world, people would send me mail, which was really great. And so having that box of letters with me is, is good to kind of open that every once in a while and just appreciate how much, how loved I am and how many great friends and, and colleagues I have. And so it keeps me grounded. I love that. And just thinking about the power of a letter. When I was little and I'd go off to summer camp, they'd have us write letters to ourselves and then they would mail them back to us. And so I did a version of that with our faculty a couple of years back for the new faculty experience for them to write letters to themselves of what their aspirations were about what kind of teachers they wanted to be and then mailed it off. But what you're talking about, Douglas, is a way we can do this without as much orchestration, <laughs> that it can be more a prescription of hope and a reminder of, like you said, being loved anytime that you need it, if you've got a box like that there. So that's something that we always recommend that people do. Just when you get discouraged, you're not feeling particularly loved, there's your source to just remind you of that. So thank you for sharing that with us. So, Aaron, I would like to hear from you about first impressions and specifically your first impressions of Douglas. And then I suppose, Douglas, we could probably ask you the same thing, but talk a little bit about first impressions, what you think about them in general, and then what, how that interaction with Douglas early on was for you. Yeah, I think first impressions, I mean, especially with students, are extremely important and in particular in large classes because sometimes that might be the only interaction you have with a student. And so my interaction with Douglas was eye-opening for me because I was um, teaching, I was, I'm a non-tenure track professor, female teaching uh, chemistry generally, in this case, organic chemistry. And when I was co-teaching with a, a tenure track male professor, he was teaching first in our sequence. We were gonna split up the class and I was gonna teach second. And so I felt like students were going to see me as kind of his little helper, not his equal in any way. And so I was really, really taking that to heart and kind of thinking about that on a regular basis. And so I was walking to class and Douglas came up beside me and said, oh, Dr. Wittick, I really love your shoes. And I just said, I'm more than my shoes. <laughs> and then I immediately felt awful and I was worried that I'd already ruined that relationship because I was really putting on Douglas my insecurities. So um, that's made, really made me rethink first impressions, especially with students. Oh, I just love that. And Douglas, do you have a story about your first impression or not maybe of this class, of your discipline or any anything that comes to mind in terms of first impressions and how wrong we can be sometimes with them? And yeah, I mean, I think Dr. Wittick's, you know, Aaron's um, first impression uh, was, you know, it caught me off guard, but I was trying to be really cognizant of that at the same time, too. So when she said, I'm more than my shoes, I immediately was just like, oh, shucks, like, that's right. Like, 
why why did I start with that? Like uh, we, she's teaching an organic chemistry class. This is one of the hardest classes, and and the two professors who are teaching it have already demonstrated that it's going to be like amazing, and they understand the sort of struggle that it's going to be. And so it seemed like she had um, demonstrated that this class, you know, created a safe space that was super welcoming. And I had kind of like cut all the way through all of that and said like, ah, shoes are what I want to talk about today. Um, And so I felt equally um, as bad after that conversation as well, too. Oh, yeah. And what what happened next? I mean, how I think one of the things I guess, Aaron, that you said is that we don't have to stay there. I always think of this in terms of whether it's microaggressions or, or, or anything that might come up if, if, if it's a something that happens in a class even that you didn't do, but but students, you're, you're not happy with the exchange. And I walk around, you know, for years just reminiscing about how terrible that was. I, I always try to remind myself and any extent I could remind other people, like, we're not done then, right? I mean, we can have a terrible interaction and yet here we are with Aaron inviting you to be on a podcast. So clearly, like your relationship didn't stay there. How did you get past that? What happened next? Um, I mean, I think we just both, you know, realized that that was you know, not the impression we had wanted to have on each other. At least that's that's what I think. And we continued to, you know, build that relationship and move forward. So I don't I don't think I apologized. Did I, Douglas? I don't think we apologized to each other necessarily, but. I think we both realized kind of the the fault in our ways and and started over again. Yeah, I think we just kept moving because the, you know, the thing that tied us together was that we were both in the same sort of class and and you were still my professor. So regardless of... So he had to be nice to you. Yeah, I had to be nice to you, right? So, um, yeah. Well, you know, you're on a podcast now, so you could, you know, now could be the time. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) So we know with first impressions that how easy it is to miscommunicate. And Aaron, you already identified just anytime we're, I mean, we're always doing it. We're always projecting things onto people that may or may not be accurate. And so just our awareness of that. And then the importance of just recognizing it doesn't have to end there, that we can return from these things and and perhaps even have even stronger relationships because of the trust that you build as you, you know, work back through those kinds of things. And I think there's so many parallels between the kind of trust that is needed in human relationships and the kind of trust that is needed with assessment. And assessment so often, you know, is perceived as irrelevant work, you know, busy work or or stuff that doesn't matter. Or I mean, we've had lots of episodes around how the way that we think about assessment might inadvertently encourage cheating. And, you know, I mean, there's so much that we can unpack here. Today's conversation, we're going to be thinking specifically about ways to have more equitable assessment. And I think it would be helpful if we start just, Douglas, hearing from you, how have you experienced assessment in general as a pre-med student? Yeah. So, I mean, um, assessment is a real big part of being a pre-med student. You know, from the moment you take the ACT and the SAT to the moment you take the MCAT, there's a lot of assessment happening. And even in medical school, there's quite a bit of assessment. And a lot of this assessment follows the same sort of pattern. Um, It's these sort of really big, long um, endurance sort of tests where you kind of have to train yourself for the exam itself, um, not necessarily the content on the exam you know, the, the MCAT is seen as a marathon that you train up to and just because it, it is seven hours long. 
and throughout that process, when you're when you're training for the MCAT, uh, so to speak, when you are in undergrad and you're studying biology, and then you're studying microbiology, and then you're studying organic chemistry, these are all really heavy hitting courses that a lot of times have very similar assessment structures, where it'll be a midterm and a final. Um, and so there's a lot of content on those exams. And that can be really stressful. I found that to be extremely stressful. And so I think my experience with assessment is sort of in two, two ways. One is that it caused a lot of anxiety for me because, you know, it, it, it's just very difficult to sort of study for an exam, especially if you have multiple classes that have these sort of high stakes assessments where they really do dictate your sort of path to medical school and your chances of getting into medical school. And so that was very stressful. But at the same time, I knew that I had to be very good at it. So it was also a skill that I worked hard to develop or was at least, you know, programmed to accept because it's something that, you know, you can't really get into medical school without the MCAT. You have to be able to perform very well on these sort of exams, which are high stakes exams. And you have to be able to deal with all of that anxiety and push all that down and just kind of, you know, put your knowledge to work on, on test day. And so, you know, it, it's kind of this balance of I want to be really good at it and I become very good at it and I'm well practiced in it. But then also it's something that gave me a lot of anxiety and still does give me a lot of testing anxiety. Mm. And Aaron, you've been someone who has inflicted assessment on others. Could you talk a little bit about your journey in thinking about assessment? Yeah, it, it really has been a journey. And it's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring a student on the podcast today with me because students have been integral to that journey. I did a, a scholarship of teaching and learning project where I looked at the attitude of students coming in and out of organic chemistry. And what I saw was that there wasn't really a huge change, which was really disheartening for me because uh, I had put a lot into the class in terms of building relationships. So I was really in influenced by Peter Felton and his work around relationship rich education. And he had actually come to our, my previous institution and spoke and, and he was talking about the importance of relationships. And I just, I, I remember lifting up my hand and I said, but I have 350 students. I can't be that person to everybody in the class. And he encouraged me to create those structures where students could build relationships with each other and learning assistance. And so I put a lot of work into that structure and putting more active learning into my class where students uh, worked on problems together. And so I was kind of demoralized that students didn't come out of the class with a, a, a better attitude towards chemistry. And so what I asked them was, what was the biggest positive and negative influence on your attitude? And positive was the relationship. So that was a win where they had created some sort of meaningful relationship with another student or a learning assistant or someone else or me or someone else in the class. But the biggest negative impact on their attitude was assessment. And so that's when I really started to think about how I inflicted mostly high stakes assessment on students and what I really valued, especially in science where we say that we value failure and then every single failure with high stakes assessment is a count against a student. So I realized that my, the way that I was assessing students didn't really uh, mesh with my values in any way, my, my personal values and also my um, scientific values. So I really started to think about how could I get a more three-dimensional view um, as Robert Talbert talks about um, of assessment with students. 
And I, I think it's kind of interesting and might be useful um, for folks listening to kind of think about how, and I'm not speaking for all students, but kind of how I and at least my colleagues and my cohort kind of uh, dealt with the assessment. So if, if we're all pre-med students, and of course, pre-med students have their own sort of relationship to STEM education, that's different than other STEM students. But as a pre-med student, we're, we're in organic chemistry, so we're in Aaron's class, and then we're also in microbiology or a biochemistry class. And, and that's our other big STEM foundation course um, at the same time as organic chemistry. And so we're taking those two courses at the same time. Um, and both of those are two semester courses. So we're taking those at the same time. And both of them have very similar assessment strategies. So it's, you know, maybe three exams in a final or two exams in a final. And so, and a lot of times because of just the way that the semester is broken up, those exams cl pretty closely coincide. And and the professors are usually pretty good, um, although they don't necessarily have to be, but they're usually pretty good about under and being understanding of that um, and shifting the exam schedule so that they don't line up at the exact same week. But a lot of times they're, you know, around the weekend from each other. So you might have a Thursday exam and then a, a Tuesday exam sort of thing. And that's still a really stressful space to be in um, because you go through this period where you're basically as a student, you're kind of just cramming all of the material. Um, and then you do what I call like a pump and dump strategy where you're cramming all the material into your brain and then you try and lose it as fast as possible mm. so you can cram other material in. And of course, your stress levels sort of are periodic as well um, because there's these periods where you have a weekend or a two-week period where you have two back-to-back -back really stressful exams that account for 25% of your grade for you know, this particular year or 25% of your GPA for this particular year. And so your stress levels spike then, and then you kind of have this sort of, uh, you know, like this withdrawal where there's not a lot to do afterwards. And it's really hard um, when you're going through this sort of periodic stress to continue learning and continue moving forward because every exam seems like you've like reached the summit. And now there should be some sort of moment where you get to kind of take a, a, a step back and, and recalibrate. And you really don't have that time um, because on Tuesday you have the next exam in a different course. I love this pump and dump strategy. This is just priceless. And you just described to me, so Douglas, if we ever get the great privilege of being able to be around one another, and if we were to play games, I'd like to let you know how to win. I mean, I'm actually, maybe not, but, but for me, I had pump and dump. I didn't know what it was called, but I had that with geography. So I think I've earned an A on every test. I mean, it's been years since I ever took one, but I can recall very vividly taking tests on geography and literally standing outside the classroom and being like, ba -ba 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 -ba, okay, got it, go in and literally dumping it all out. And I mean, it's embarrassing how bad I am at it now. I mean, it's just, it, if, if people actually knew how bad I was, I think I would lose all respect from like a great, <laughs> a great number of people. So that, cause I think so many times professors want to do the right thing. And so they're thinking like, but I have to prepare these people for these high stake tests. Like I, I'm not doing them justice if I don't get them ready. I'm actually failing them if I don't toughen them up, I guess. So we have to kind of break this down of like, I can't say that, for example, to one extreme, Douglas, I can't say then, I guess if I don't want to do the pump and dump, then I should just never give tests. Well, then you're not preparing them for the actual high stake test. That is how you get into medical school. So we can't give it all up together. But what then do we do to have more equitable assignments? And you've, you've talked about it a little bit, but Aaron, I'd love to hear you share more of like, if this is the problem, we don't want the pump and dump, yet we have to be preparing 
for what what is known as I mean, you know relevant or authentic assessment that it's actually assessing but also preparing people for the things that they're going to need to be able to do whether it's knowledge skills whatever what are some of your thoughts around that to to deal with some of the challenges Douglas talked about while still sufficiently preparing people for what they'll need yeah i hear this from STEM faculty a lot. I mean, I think, I mean, this applies to all faculty that your context is so important. So what is your own context as a faculty member? What's your context in your department? Who are your students? You know, thinking about all of these factors that go into designing your assessments and making sure that they line up with your values and your learning objectives and things like that. And so giving up exams might not be the answer for your context, but it could maybe be de-emphasizing those exams so that they're not worth, you know, it's not so scary to go in and have that midterm exam that's worth 50% of your grade and perhaps reducing that emphasis and increasing the emphasis on active learning or formative assessment or other examples of authentic assessment. And there, you know, you've had lots of great examples on, on your podcast of what that looks like in STEM, it could be, you know, an infographic project, it could be a fact sheet, it could be an annotated bibliography, it could be citizen science, there are so many different um, avenues you could take depending on your context, because as I always taught pretty large classes, and so, you know, not all of those things are going to work in that context, but um, there has been research that de-emphasizing exams can lower the gap between underrepresented groups and the majority groups um, in terms of test scores. And so I think that's definitely, if you do not want to give up exams, that's one avenue that you can go down. A former student of mine who's actually been on the podcast before, Donald Bullock, he just took the LSAT, which is the test that people take to get into law school. And so I, th- I think about him as he had a authentic real motivation to study for that test but he wasn't it wasn't associated with a class but I think about all the work that he did he time himself I, I I learned a lot because I've never taken that test so I learned a lot about what does it look like and we had some really good conversations too about some of the inequities around online proctoring because we're still in the middle of COVID so it was proctored I mean it's just it's an incredible thing but I think about like I don't have to motivate you Douglas to want to do well on the MCAT like that. So, so a lot of times why we do assessment is to provide some sort of, a, of motivation. Now, I think it's wrongheaded sometimes. So that's already taken care of. If you, ha- if you have someone who wants to do that, like you don't, you don't have to. So why not just reduce, like you said, Erin, re- reduce the stakes way, 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 way down because the motivation's already high. And if I take the stakes down, then guess what I do, Douglas? Some of the stress comes down. We don't learn well under stress. So then I can actually be equipping someone for the thing that they really want to be able to do without hindering them due to the, the stress of the high stakes stuff. So, yeah, if we can have more small stakes stuff. And you gave a lot of examples, Aaron, of other ways that I can still be building this body of knowledge that is going to prepare me. And the benefits of doing things like what Aaron talked about, infographics, annotated bibliography, et cetera, is that not only am I doing that for this body of knowledge, but I'm also learning how to do that for myself in other contexts. 
So in the case of Donald, he was in you know my class and we talk a lot about retrieval practice. So he's able to do that with the LSAT, even though I'm not teaching him the LSAT, which is good because I wouldn't be a lot of help to him that way. So yeah, that's really wonderful. Now, earlier, Aaron, you had talked about the three-dimensional view from Robert Talbert. Would you speak a little bit? He's been on the show many times before, but he hasn't spoke about that. And I'll link to an article or, or articles for them to learn more. But would you just give a little bit of an overview of that from Robert Talbert and then people can can click the show notes to find out more. Yeah, and I think the, those three dimensions might be different for, you know, depending on your context, but he talked about like basic skill, ma- he teaches calculus. So basic skill mastery, applications of basic skills and engagement. And so he talked about building kind of an assessment package that um, is going to assess students in those three dimensions. But I think something else that's really important that he mentions is that he talks about having the smallest set of assessments that give that information to the student and to the faculty member about the learning along those three dimensions. Because I think, you know, as we've seen in this last year, sometimes it's, we kind of go that direction of over assessing and not necessarily being transparent about why we're assessing. So I think he, he says a lot in that blog post about that transparency, you know, those different ways of assessing students, but having that smallest set of assessments to, to provide that information. Yeah, and I think one thing to kind of think about when we talk about changing assessment strategies is I think it's important to consider that the students might be um, resistant to changing assessment strategies just because of the way that we've all kind of been naturalized and programmed. And especially, you know, pre-med students are probably going to be very resistant to alternative assessment strategies because they're going to feel like it's going, it's not training them for the MCAT, which I think it's, you know, entirely fine to consider whether or not that's really the goal of your course. Um, Is it to train your students for the MCAT? Um, I think most (laughs) of us would say no, but the students kind of want that. Um, And the students, and myself, you know, certainly we all figure out how to game the exam and we sort of learn the exam. And when I say game the exam, I don't mean in a disgenuous way. I just mean we have to be efficient with our time because there is a lot of high stakes, you know, like the, the stakes are extremely high across the board. So we have to be super efficient with our time. And, you know, a multiple choice exam where I get four um, wrong answers and one right answer might allow me to be more efficient with my studying practices and more efficient with, you know, using my heuristics and my sort of pattern recognition to get the the highest yield on that exam than some sort of assignment or some sort of assessment strategy that's going to require more time or it's going to require more effort or it's going to require a sort of different way of thinking that I'm not super used to um, and I'm not as comfortable with. So, you know, I might I think even now I might have, if someone would have come to me and said, you know, we're thinking about changing the assessment strategy and there's multiple choice. And then there's also annotated bibliographies that you could do. Which one do you want? I might've chosen multiple choice just because it's what I know and what I've been trained to be good or bad at. um, But it's at least something that I'm familiar with. And because high stakes assessment creates such a risk adverse environment where there is no room to fail I might be unwilling to entertain the possibility that I would be better off with a different assessment strategy because there's no risk in what I know, um, but there's a lot of risk in trying something new. Oh, I love that. You you just said so much there. (laughs) I'm still recalling a situation early in my teaching when I had a teaching assistant and I wasn't going to be able to be there on a Friday. So this is a Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I think it was an 8 a.m. class or something like that. And I'm trying to figure out you know, could I get a guest speaker to come in to cover that Friday? 
what, what, what would that look like? And I, I'm just really putting a lot of pressure on myself because it's hard uh, to, since I was early in my teaching, I so vividly remembered not understanding the culture and all the mistakes I had made because I just didn't understand who it was I was going to be working with and everything. So I thought, how do I get someone familiar enough with college students and these specific college students, their names and all that? How am I going to take role? Maybe the TA could do it, all that stuff. And then my TA says, I'm going to need you to go back with me in time. I'm going to need you to remember what it was like to be in college and to have an 8 a.m. class on a Friday. And I want you to envision for just a moment what would have happened if your professor canceled the class. <laughs> and it was just like this epiphany because I felt such a responsibility. It was coming from a good place. I cared. I wanted to be diligent, but I literally had just forgotten. You know, and some of that, some of that is good, right? It's good to care. But some of that is not good. Like, we need to stop taking ourselves so seriously. Like you said, I get a lot of faculty who get so frustrated. Like, why can't students just want to learn? Well, um, we could put that on them or we could think about all of the myriad of ways (laughs) that we create a system of transaction. You've got a bunch of boxes to check because we laid them all out for you. And it's bigger than just our one class. So even if we got good at it, just like you said, Douglas, if I get better at doing this, I'm still going to experience resistance because the system is bigger than me and my one class. And it's really hard to navigate all of that. Right. And it's very hard as a faculty member when you do try something new and you get that resistance to just go back to your old ways uh, as well. I think faculty really need that support in terms of professional development, in terms of folks, you know, teaching circles, folks to talk to about teaching. Um, And sometimes that's not always built into uh, the system uh, for faculty either. Yeah, I think transparency is just so important too. And constantly getting the feedback. If I'm asking you about how you're experiencing your learning, we can talk about some of this. Some of the time I just need to explain, actually, the retrieval practice would be kind of a classic example for me where, you know, when we spend the time doing this, the research would seem to indicate that not only will you get greater retention for whatever the high stakes is, that's whether it's a test in my class or the MCAT, but that actually the deeper learning that will take you way beyond it, it's really able to help you integrate that, that body of knowledge in your own neural networks. So that, but if you don't know that, it could seem like a waste of time. And because the, the other thing, Douglas, I don't know if you're familiar with this this kind of research, but around something like p- retrieval practice, which is basically like testing for learning, that it's harder to do that. And so if I put you in a lot of situations where you could either listen to me lecture and take notes, which is what you're already familiar with doing, and is comfortable in the sense of I'm not oh about to fail, I'm not about to look foolish in front of my peers or my professor. It's harder. And so if you don't explain to students why you're doing that, well, you're going to get the resistance. Why are we doing this? Until we can create that safe enough environment that both you feel psychologically safe to fail in this environment and you also see that there actually is a reason why we're doing this that will benefit you for some of the things that you have, which might or might not be that that larger stakes exam. Erin, I know you've done things like retrieval practice in your class. Have you met with resistance and how do you overcome that or, or, or has it been a concern of yours? 
Uh, I mean, I've just tried to be extreme, like you said, like Marianne Winklesmith's work on transparency and, and teaching and learning has been really influential for me and working with faculty too, because it, I think it really resonates with everyone when you talk about, you know, why are you doing this thing in your class? And faculty will to always be able to tell you because they are very intentional about everything they do in their class, but sometimes they don't communicate that to their students. And so, you know, really getting into that. And sometimes it feels really repetitive to be constantly saying, you know, this is why we're doing this, but that repetition is really important too. So even if it's, you know, the 10th time you've done that retrieval practice assignment or brain dump or anything like that, I would always kind of preface that with, this is the reason why we're, we're doing this. And I've definitely seen since that point, you know, students that talk about, like you said, with your own student that use this in other courses too, because they understand why it's beneficial to them. And they saw the, the results in different, uh, in other courses as well. Before we get to the recommendation segment, I just wanted to cover one other area. And there's so much more we could talk about, but just I mentioned the importance of having a psychologically safe environment to fail in. You talked about that earlier in terms of the importance of failure in STEM fields. I mean, I, I, when we had I had Anissa Ramirez on, she's like, "It's not failure; it's data." I'm not I'm not quoting her directly or as well as she said it, but that's really stuck with me all of this time since since I first had the opportunity to speak with her. But yet, like you said, we don't. We don't do that enough in our teaching or in our learning. And and Erin, you've got uh, some insight on this around your own uh, mistake example that you made and what it kind of taught you about the importance of incorporating that. Would you would you share a little bit about the importance of us admitting our mistakes and, and being willing to sort of have them in a very public way? Yeah, that was a, another story that related to to Douglas as well. It was near the end of second semester organics. So it's been a very long year and we were going over examples of the American Chemical Society's exam and I made an error and Douglas pointed it out you know in front of the large class and <laughs> it's taken me a long time though to get to this point where I'm just like yeah that that is a mistake and Douglas came up to me after class and said to me he's like thank you for admitting your mistake and being really vulnerable in that way I don't think he said it in that way but that's the gist of what he was he was saying and I realized that, you know, a lot of STEM faculty, especially depending on your positionality, you know, as a, a woman in STEM, I, you know, go into class and I feel like I can't make a mistake because then, you know, students might not think the same way as me as in terms of my level of intelligence and things like that in class. But I've just kind of given that up at this point. But I also realized that some folks you know, they don't have that same privilege in terms of, of making mistakes in front of the class too. So that's taken me, taken me a long time to get there, but I think it's important to, to show that we can, can fail openly and, and show students our mistakes. Douglas, do you remember when that happened? Yeah. So, I mean, I think just, you know, it's just spoke to me the idea that it was a safe enough space that even the professor could kind of acknowledge that this is hard. Um, and I think that's really what it, it wasn't so much that there was an acknowledgement of an error. It was more an acknowledgement that this is hard. That's at least what I needed to hear. And I think that's what a lot of students need to hear, especially when we're talking about organic chemistry, which is kind of like wrapped in all of this lore about being a really problematic um, and hard class. 
And so having the professor kind of acknowledge that this is hard and this is not something, you know, sometimes our pattern recognition sort of fails us. Um, and so um, we need to sort of go back and look more critically at things and, and mistakes are going to happen, I think really spoke volumes to me. And then I'm sure it spoke volumes to the other students as well about just that sort of empathy um, and that sort of response from a professor. Mm. Yeah. Did you talk to anyone else in the class about it, Douglas, or was it just not a big thing? Like, oh, that was interesting that that happened. Did it evoke any conversations outside? No, I think it was totally in line with what we expected from Erin. Um, <laughs> you know, so like, I think if she would not have acknowledged it, then it would have been a completely different thing. But all of us knew that that was exactly what the correct response was. And that was the human response. And that's the the, the response that was caring and loving. And so I don't think it was surprising to any of us, but I also think that we recognized how much courage that that took as well. And so I wanted to just, you know, thank her for that um, as well and for acknowledging that this is difficult. Yeah. And I think I'm I'm empathizing so much with you, Aaron. And I think we're in a very different context because I'm imagining my classes of like 20 students. How many students were in the room when this happened? Probably 300 or so students, I think. That's very hard for me to imagine. I love this. Thank you for this example. Before we get to the recommendations segment, I wanted to spend just a few minutes sharing about today's sponsor, and that is SaneBox. All of us get so much email, it doesn't stop no matter the time of year. And most of it doesn't need to be read, especially not read in the moment right when it comes in, which can interrupt our day. And what SaneBox does is it's a smart algorithm to sort our email into, yes, we do need to pay attention to this right now and the stuff that could wait until later. In fact, one of the things SaneBox does is create a folder called Sane Later that automatically sends emails over that are less likely to need our attention. It is very easy to retrain SaneBox if it doesn't get it right and it puts it somewhere it shouldn't. You can just drag an email from your inbox into the Sane later or other folders or vice versa. But I've actually found I can hardly ever remember a time when I had to retrain it because it's just that good at knowing. And so if you'd like to have a better way of managing your email, I can think of no other way to get started than SaneBox for what it can do. And if you head over to SaneBox.com slash T-I as in teaching in H-E as in higher education, T-I-H-E, sanebox.com slash T-I-H-E, then you'll be able to get a $25 credit toward a SaneBox subscription and also get a free trial so you can see if it works as well for you as it does for me and for Dave as well. So you can also find out on that page a little bit more about how SaneBox works and what's going to happen. I'm only skimming the surface, by the way. There are all kinds of things that it does. It's really easy to get started with, but there are lots of features that I benefit from that help save time time and also have a little bit less of a workload in terms of managing my email. So again, thanks to SaneBox for sponsoring today's episode. All right, this is the time in the show where we each get to give our recommendations. And I have sort of a general recommendation and then I'll make it a little bit more specific. So my general recommendation is for us all to find a way to go camping. And that might seem kind of weird in the sense of like, isn't that kind of easy to do? All you need is a tent and et cetera. Well, in our family, we have some people in our family that would love like the rugged pitch a tent, you know, 
cook with boiling water. You can tell I don't do this a lot and I'm not that person. But we we went camping recently. And if you could see me, I might have air quotes around camping. Uh, we went to a place where we got to stay with all the luxuries of home, like in a little lodge and everything, warm water and flushing toilets and all of that. But that had other elements of camping so that everybody kind of got to win. So specifically where we went was called KOA Campgrounds. I believe they're only in the United States, but it's a place that has lots of different ways that you might camp. You could pitch a tent or you could stay in a lodge like we did. But I just it was such a lovely experience and we really benefited as a family. So I would encourage everybody to find some way to go camping, whatever that means. And even if all it means is making some s'mores, you know, (laughs) even in your own backyard. I literally made a s'more the other day (laughs) by poking the marshmallow onto a fork and and doing it on our stovetop. So, I mean, there's lots of ways that you can go camping. It doesn't have to look like we picture what that word means. And it's just been delightful to connect as a family that way. So, Erin, I'm going to pass it over to you for your recommendations. Sure. I'll, I'll second the camping. I <laughs> grew up camping and actually I grew up in rural Canada. So even in, in seventh grade, I took uh, what's called Hunter's Ed. So we learned how to like go and like build a lean to and like survive in the wilderness. And eighth grade was Fisher's Ed. So <laughs> and then ninth grade was con- uh, conservation. I don't know why that was last, but <laughs> so I'll definitely second that recommendation. I guess my recommendation is a little bit self-serving. Um, our institution uh, offers an opportunity to faculty, instructional designers, anyone to attend uh, this Focus in Teaching and Technology Conference. And this year it's free and it's going to be held virtually from September 29th through October 1st. And registration is open on the website. And I think Bonnie's going to be kind enough to put it um, into the show notes. And also you can check out your host. Bonnie is going to be (laughs) one of our keynote speakers, in addition to Sandra McGuire. So we'll have lots of also concurrent sessions about um, innovative technologies and teaching and, and many other things. So I would highly recommend checking that out. And then my other recommendation is one that I've already kind of touched on, which is the Transparent Design in Higher Education and Leadership book by Marianne Winklemiss and colleagues. I think it's a really great way to kind of rethink your assessments, but also even how you approach meetings and, and lots of other things. So those are my two. Oh, I knew about the website, but I didn't know about the book. So this is this is great. Thank you so much for both of these recommendations. And I'm so looking forward to the conference. I'm very honored to have been invited. And I've seen Sandra speak many times. She's been on the podcast before. And it's going to be a wonderful event. So I hope people will consider checking it out and joining us. And Douglas, what do you have to recommend today? Yeah, so I've been thinking more about just my news digest and whether or not I'm kind of living in an echo chamber and whether or not I am really uh, media literate. And so one of the things that I've been lucky to stumble upon is this website, and they also have various Twitter and Reddit and Google Chrome extensions. It's called uh, Ground News. And what they do is they kind of break down news stories by the way that they are being covered in across the political spectrum. And they'll show you kind of the distribution of coverage. And you can view the same news story under, you know, uh, on a variety of different websites and kind of see the way that that's being covered. And for me, it's been really enlightening to sort of see the way that, you know, maybe the news that I consume is very different than the news that someone else might consume. And then they also have bias checkers, like I said, that work for Reddit and Twitter and for Google Chrome that will kind of acknowledge when you click on a web page that you've been sent or has been shared with you 
it'll kind of point out, you know, this is the sort of lean or this is the sort of perspective that this news organization might offer. And that just kind of clues me in um, that maybe there's more to the story or, or maybe, you know, I'm being presented with the, the full picture. So it's been really helpful to me just in, in sort of living daily life. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much for that recommendation. And are you a camper, Douglas? Is that, are you going to add that so we can have all three of us as recommending yes, camping? I, I, of course, will third camping as an Eagle Scout um, oh. and someone who really loved camping and still does. I think it's a great opportunity to get outside. I totally love it. Well, thanks to both of you for being a guest today on Teaching in Higher Ed and for all the wisdom and practical advice that you gave us. Um, so much to think about and so much to consider about our teaching. Thank thanks you. so much. Thanks so much to Aaron Wittick and Douglas Fritz for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm leaving our conversation with a smile on my face and so much to think about and put into action. If you would like to receive the show notes for today's episode, they're probably already in your podcast player if you swipe to the left or right or up or down. It depends on your player. But you also can visit them at teachinginhighered.com slash 370. And I'd encourage you to sign up for the weekly Teaching in Higher Ed update because you'll not only receive those show notes in your inbox, but you also will receive some recommendations that go beyond what gets recommended in the shows, some quotable words and other good stuff. So head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe if you'd like to get that in your inbox once a week. And thanks so much for being a listener of Teaching in Higher Ed.